Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when, and when, every, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought that they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, excuse me, on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have been born, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as a gift to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Do you know the song Amazing Grace? I'm sure that you do. I'm sure everyone here uh, is familiar with that song. It was written in 1772 by John Newton, published in 1779. And outside of scripture, it's probably the greatest hymn that's ever been written. There probably aren't very many people in this country who don't know the song when they hear it. It's made its way into the popular lexicon of our culture. It's been recorded professionally over 7,000 times. If you Google Amazing Grace, like I did this week, the first thing that comes up is not the famous hymn. It's not the fantastic movie about William Wilberforce and his mission to end the British transatlantic slave trade. It's not scripture passages talking about the incredible grace of God. It's a shampoo and body lotion line. It's YouTube videos of rewritten, rearranged versions of the hymn as, as beautiful folk music or as a way to showcase singing talent. The world and our culture have a habit of taking spiritual concepts and emptying them of their original meaning. This morning, our text pushes back against that watering down of the concept of grace. And there is no concept that's more central to the Christian gospel than grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Apostle Paul communicates in his letter to the Ephesian church the incredible, foundational, impossible truth that people are saved only by God's unmerited favor through faith in Christ. For the note-takers in the room, here's our definition for grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. It's not something earned. It's not your own doing. It's not sustained by your good works. It's not anything that you deserve. It's favor given completely apart from anything related to you. It's entirely dependent on the giver, not the recipient. Grace is a beautiful theological truth, but we often struggle to understand it. The world inherently values fairness, and that permeates our thinking. And grace runs counter to fairness. And the distinction between those categories helps us to see how different the values of the kingdom of heaven are from the values of men. What is fair for you and I is to bear the consequences of our sin. What is fair for every sinner is to endure the just judgment of a righteous God. We have disobeyed an eternal, holy God who created us for good things, to enjoy him and glorify him. But we have fallen short, and we deserve eternal separation from him in hell. That's hard, but that's what's fair. Praise God that grace is not fair. Parables are one of Jesus' favorite ways of announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. They're stories that take a truth and turn it sideways. They force us to think and reflect. Most of Jesus' parables address situations that were familiar to his listeners in order to introduce unfamiliar concepts about the kingdom of heaven. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard explains the teaching that in the kingdom of heaven, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus shows us that God is generous, that he pursues his people, and he delights to give them far more than they could ever deserve. He shows us that God determines what is fair and what is just, not man. It's a warning against spiritual pride and a powerful demonstration of God's amazing grace. With three points this morning from our text, our first point is the pursuit of the master in verses one through seven. The pursuit of the master, it's verses one through seven. Second point, the wages of the saints, verses 8 through 12. The wages of the saints. And the final point is the amazing grace of God, verses 13 through 16. 
let's dig into this parable. It starts, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Vineyards were common in the region and critical to the local economy where Jesus is giving this teaching. They produced food and wine for the markets and were a major employer of people. This is a familiar setting for Jesus' hearers. But for us, there will be some context that needs clarifying along the way. We don't, we don't work in vineyards. We don't see a lot of vineyards. The master goes to the marketplace to find workers for the day. He goes early. The sun is nearly up. And there are workers there already to be hired. The workers agree to a full day's labor for a day's wage. A Roman silver coin called a denarius was a day's wage. That was the standard daily wage of the day. And for our understanding, four denarii were enough to feed a modest-sized family for a week. So I think we can agree that this is a fairly good wage for a day's labor. At the third hour, the master goes back to the marketplace again for more help. There's a way of telling time in this parable that's different from our way of telling time. When it says that the master went back at the third hour, it doesn't mean 3 in the morning. It doesn't mean 3 a.m. Uh, I think they'd have a hard time picking grapes at 3 in the morning, seeing what they're doing. Uh, the workday started at sunrise, so about 6 in the morning. The third hour was 9, the sixth hour was noon, and the eleventh hour was about 5 p.m., an hour before sundown. The master finds some men in the marketplace out of work, standing idle, it says, and he hires them, saying, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. He doesn't offer an exact amount this time, but he says that he'll pay what's right. The men understand that this means that they'll be paid fairly for the part of the day that they work. The master must have had a good reputation of being fair because they agree without question. At the sixth hour, the landowner returns again to the marketplace and again in the middle of the afternoon. The frequency and urgency of his call points to this being harvest season. He has to gather all the grapes that he can before they fall from the vine and are lost. He has to get as much work done before sundown as possible. It's all hands on deck to get this crop harvested. And each time he goes to the market, he finds men in need of work. And each time he calls them to the harvest. At the end of the day, he goes back one final time. Look at verse 6. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. Somehow, even with him coming and going all day, 
there are still unemployed workers in the marketplace. We can take this two ways. They were either avoiding work all day and had somehow escaped his notice until then. Or they had been out all day trying to get work and no one would hire them. It's debated among commentators. There's no real consensus. Uh, I prefer to think that it's the latter. I want to read this generously. I think that these last men want to work or they wouldn't still be standing in the marketplace at the end of the day. They would have gone home long before. The master says to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they give an honest answer, because no one has hired us. It appears that these were the least desirable workers. No one was willing to hire them all day, but the master will hire them. Even though it's the last hour of the day, and there's very little that they could contribute, he values their labor. He values it enough to send them to work. Did you notice that in each of these interactions, the master is the one initiating? He goes to the marketplace, he finds the workers, he calls them to labor. He is a picture of the Lord who takes all the initiative in establishing his kingdom and calling people to himself. Just as the master is calling people out of idleness and into work, the Lord calls people out of futility into kingdom work. We don't seek him out. He finds us. He does not care whether a worker has great skill and is desirable or they are the last one picked. The master hires them all. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Twice, in verses 3 and verse 6, the laborers are called out for standing idle. People who are not working for the kingdom are like that. They are standing idle when there is work to be done. Idleness implies that there's nothing to be done that is worthy of our time and effort. The apostle James tells us that idleness is a sin. James 4, 17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Every one of us was made with a purpose. We were made to serve the king. As long as there are people who are lost and without Christ, there is work to be done. There is a harvest to be brought in. The Prince of Preachers, uh, Charles Spurgeon, said regarding this text, why is any of us remaining idle towards God? Has nothing yet had power to engage us in sacred service? Can we dare to say, no man hath hired us? If you are a believer, you have been hired. God sends you into the harvest knowing that the fruit is in season, is ready. It's ready to be harvested. 
God calls people of all sorts out of darkness and into the light. He calls doctors and lawyers and engineers and builders and retirees and students and homemakers and the homeless and sex workers. He calls all of them to repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. He calls people who have spent their whole lives doing evil, pursuing pleasures and worldly lusts. He calls the young. He calls people in their 11th hour of life, when their life is nearly spent. And everyone has something to offer that is valuable for the kingdom. It may not feel like it, beloved, but you have something valuable to offer. There's work that only you can do, prepared for you beforehand by the master. He needs all hands to the plow. We follow his example by going out again and again with the call of the gospel. We are his ambassadors, his messengers who stand in his place authorized by him to extend the call. We must never stop calling people out of their idleness and emptiness to a life of meaningful work for the kingdom. Be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. There are people in your life right now who may be ready to be harvested. So get to the harvest. There is hope even for old sinners. While there is life, there is hope for repentance. But the reality is that no one is hired in the 12th hour. There are many in the marketplace who are never called. When the day is done, when life is done, the opportunity is done. If you're with us this morning, if you've gathered with us this morning and you've not trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, the master is calling you. How will you respond? Will you trust in Jesus? Listen closely this morning and see how the master rewards those who answer his call. See what treasure awaits all those who trust in Jesus. Let's look at how the workers respond to their wages in point number two, verses eight through 12. The day is over. The sun has gone down and the work is ended. The master tells his foreman to call the workers in and pay them. It was customary for day laborers to get paid at the end of each day. God even includes it in the law. In Leviticus 19, 13, it says, The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. The poor were always one day away from destitution. So the, the workers crowd around the foreman's table, ready to receive their paychecks. Obviously, they're not giving checks, but you know, you know what I mean. 
At the direction of the master, the foreman begins with those who are hired last. And that, that should prick our ears. It's an intentional inversion. We would expect that those who were hired first would be paid first. They have seniority. They've earned that right. This is, this is our first twist in the story. The master flips the script and pays the last first because the story is designed to elicit a reaction from the workers and from us as the listeners. Jesus is teaching that in the kingdom of heaven, many who are first will be last and the last first. This is a pivotal moment in the story. Rather than pay the last workers a prorated amount for an hour's work, the master pays them a full day's wage. How generous is this? Like this is, this is shocking. This is like Oprah handing out cars level of generosity. You get a denarius and you get a denarius and you get a denarius. These workers, who couldn't, they couldn't find work all day. No one would hire them. They think their opportunity to provide for their family is gone, is lost. Now they receive far more than they deserve. You can just imagine that everyone else, as they're waiting in line, is starting to run numbers in their heads, counting up what they might be paid. If these guys only worked an hour and they got a full day's wage, and I worked the whole day, it, it would only be fair that I should get like 12 denarii. That would feed my family for a month. That's enough to fix the roof and get a new bed or whatever it is that they need. Can you see the temptation towards greed and entitlement that can start to creep in? Let's be honest, this is a terrible business strategy. Like Brian exhorted us last week to be kingdom-minded and strategic, and I wholeheartedly agree. We should look for creative ways to use our resources to advance the gospel. Amen. But let's be honest. If you were trying to implement this pay structure in your business, you would be out of business very quickly. Uh, I worked in unions. Uh, I worked with unions at UPS in Kentucky, and I can tell you they would be all over this. <laughs> Lawsuits would be coming fast. And we see that the first workers don't get the extra payment that they were beginning to hope for. As the foreman goes down the line, the ninth-hour workers get a denarius, the sixth-hour workers get a denarius. Everyone gets paid one denarius. They all get paid the same wage as the 11th hour workers, as the workers who are hired last. Regardless of their skill set or how much time they put in, they all get paid the same. This, this doesn't seem fair at all. If I was standing in line and saw this happening, I would, I would feel like I had been wronged if I was one of the early workers. Why should some people get paid the same for less work. And we see how the workers respond. They respond like many of us would. 
They complain. Receiving their full payment, they've got it in hand. The first workers open their mouths, and rather than a word of thanks to the master for giving them the opportunity to work, they complain. They say, these last worked only one hour, and you've paid them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. Is their complaint accurate or inaccurate? No, it's accurate. They're right. It is unfair for those who worked less and during the cool hours of the afternoon to be paid the same as those who worked more and endured the heat of the day. The wording of their complaint here is important. The complaint is that the master has made the workers equal. They have been given equal payment for unequal work. We take it for granted that harder work or more work deserves a greater payment. That's how the world usually functions. But this master operates differently. And that's the point. The kingdom of heaven operates differently than the world. Those who were first became last, and the last became first. The kingdom of heaven operates by grace, and grace is not fair. Saint, have you ever felt like God owed you more? Have you looked at the blessings of others and felt envy in your heart? Have you questioned why God seems to be rewarding others more than you? What about me, God? When am I going to catch a break? Haven't I earned some blessings for the sacrifices I've made, for the faithfulness that I've demonstrated? Scripture is filled with these kinds of questions from weary saints. It's all over the Psalms. But beloved, we must be careful not to allow spiritual pride to get a foothold in our hearts. To think that we're owed by God because we've given more, sacrificed more time, put more effort into ministry. This is a church full of hard workers. There are very few idle people here. <laughs> so many of you are giving yourselves every week in service to this body of believers, encouraging each other, preparing meals for each other, meeting one another's needs, coming in early and preparing for this worship gathering, coming in during the week and cleaning up after this worship gathering. And some of you are wearing yourselves out. It's very easy to become puffed up and let the world, what the world values, color your understanding of what the kingdom of heaven values. It's easy to mistakenly think that your righteousness depends on you, that your salvation rests on your continued good works. Be careful that that mindset does not creep up on you. If it has, repent. Repent this morning. If you're grumbling and complaining to the Lord, 
over your circumstances as though he owes you something better, repent. Repent of your pride this morning. Ask your Father in heaven to show you his goodness towards you. He is good to you. Do you see it? You are a sinner saved by grace. Serve because it honors the Lord. Serve because it brings you joy. Serve because you love people. Don't serve because it makes you look good in the eyes of others. The wisdom of this world is folly with God. 1 Corinthians 3.19 Don't serve because it makes you feel more righteous than others. None are righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10 Don't serve because it makes you feel more sure of your salvation. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.13 these are, these are wrong motivations and a misunderstanding of grace, the grace that's been given to you. If you're in Christ, your salvation is secure. It cannot be lost. Your righteousness doesn't come from you. It comes from Christ alone. Jesus will lose none that the Father has given him. And every person who's saved inherits the same reward that far surpasses any reward that we can get in this life eternal life with the Father. The Lord has been generous to you, saint, with your wages. Let's look at the response of the Master for our final point, the amazing grace of God, verses 13 through 16. How does the Master respond to the worker's complaint? Rather than addressing the crowd, he turns to one worker in in particular, one worker individually. And by focusing on a single worker, he's emphasizing the individual relationship that he has with each worker, with each of us. He says to him, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Elsewhere in Matthew, this word for friend is used in situations where Jesus is giving a gentle rebuke to someone who's in the wrong, thinking wrong, doing wrong. Here in the South, I've heard people use the term buddy in the same way. Some of us might need to hear this from the Lord this morning. Like, hear, hear him speaking to you. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. The master responds to their complaint on legal and moral grounds. He uses a series of rhetorical questions in order to push the complainers to reflect on the meaning of what is right from verse 4. Remember, he promised the workers who started later, I will pay you what is right. What is right does not get to be determined by the workers, but by the master. The first question, or first question that he asks is a legal one. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? The negative framing of the question demands a positive response, yes. 
the worker did agree to a denarius. The master had fulfilled the contract. He's honored their agreement. He's paid them what he promised. He's not withheld anything that's due to, due to this worker. He's not done him any wrong. And he guides the worker through his questions to see what's true. The master was faithful to his promise. God is always faithful to his promises. He is always just. I think there's an insinuation here that the master's taken advantage of the earlier workers. God never takes advantage of his people. This is how God responds when we complain and grumble as believers. He reminds us of his promises through his spirit. He gently rebukes us for desiring more than what he's promised. We, we demand his generosity like children demanding something from a parent. And as a good father, he's patient to bear with us, to bear with our selfishness. Also like a good father, he always brings loving correction. There are lots of things that we expect from God that he's not promised to us. He has not promised us good health. He has not promised happy and healthy marriages. He has not promised us marriage at all, or children, or successful careers. He has not promises, promised that our businesses will last. He has not promised that your house will be standing tomorrow, or that you'll be able to live in your house tomorrow. What has he promised? He has promised that every believer will have eternal life, John 3.16. He has promised to never leave you nor forsake you, Deuteronomy 31.8. He has promised to hear your prayers, Psalm 34.15. He's promised that nothing can separate you from his love, Romans 8.38 and 39. I can keep going. He's promised to complete his work in you, Philippians 1.6. He's promised that Christ will, will bear in you much fruit. John 15.5. He's promised that he will work all things together for your good, saint. Romans 8.28. He's promised he will not withhold any good thing from you. Psalm 84.11. I'm going to say that one again. He has promised he will not withhold any good thing from you. Scripture is filled with promises from God to his people. And he is lavishly generous above and beyond these promises to us. The second and third questions that he asks are moral Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? 
the master does not feel the need to explain his reasons to the worker. Why did he give the same to the last as to the first? Because he chose to. He decides what is fair. He decides what is good. God does not need to explain himself to you or to me or to anyone. He has given us his word. He is kind and generous to do that. He is God. His ways are not our ways. He is sovereign over grace. His reasons for his generosity are completely his own. And they have nothing to do with the ones who receive it. Praise God that grace has nothing to do with our merit. So what about those who bear heavier burdens in this life? How is that fair? There will be those who labor long in this life for the kingdom and those who only labor a short time. And we, have to, we have to change our thinking to eternal mindsets. Okay, hear, hear this. Judged against eternity, there is no difference between the first hour and the 11th hour. All who believe graciously receive eternal life as an inheritance, and no one receives less from God than he or she deserves. That base offer of eternal life is pretty good. If God gives even more to some, who are you to complain? He has the right to give gifts as he pleases. Lastly, the master asks, do you begrudge my generosity? In the Greek, it's literally, it literally says, is your eye evil because I am good? It's, a, it's almost a punch in the face. Are we envious because he's generous? That's the case with the workers. Their envious hearts have been exposed by the generosity of the master. Have you been exposed this morning? They have no right to complain, just as we have no right to complain about God's gift of mercy and grace for anyone who believes. They have no right to think themselves better than anyone else because of their service. We all come into the kingdom by the same call. We all come equally needy, dead in our trespasses and sins. The God who lavishly clothes the flowers and feeds the birds delights to give his servants far more than they could ever deserve from him. This is the primary focus of the parable, more than the disappointment of the first workers. But their disappointment helps us to examine our own hearts, to see how much we're influenced by the world's idea of what's fair rather than the immeasurable generosity of the kingdom of heaven. There is no room for envious comparisons in the kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. We have to, we have to fight the temptation 
of self-righteousness. We've got to take those thoughts captive. We rely on Christ for our righteousness. The Son of God who came to save the world, who lived a perfect life that we could never live, who was blameless and despised and rejected and hung on a cross for you. He died willingly, bearing the punishment that our sins deserve. He took the guilt. He took the shame. He brought us peace with God. It's through him that we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. You are idle. How does the old hymn go? The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God, who called me here below, will be forever mine. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Do you see the value of what God has given you in the gift of salvation, in the gift of eternal life? Is Jesus' sacrifice precious to you? We cannot lose our satisfaction with the grace of God. We cannot begin to think that we need more, that we deserve more than what Christ has already done. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Eternal life is no small gift. It's living forever in the presence of God in glory, rejoicing and fellowshipping with Jesus and other believers forever, without end. This life is a mist. We're here and then we're gone. But eternal life has no end. It has no pain. It has no sin. It has no temptations. None of us deserve to be hired by the master. But brothers and sisters, you have been. Don't be idle in his service. Work is unto the Lord. Take heart. Don't grow weary in doing good. Salvation is entirely of grace, and grace is not fair. And isn't that glorious? All whom God calls, he saves. And he's generous. May that never become stale to you, saint. God's grace is truly amazing. Amen.